long-term practice such as you have undertaken here and I am about to uh, offers us a unique opportunity to transform our aspiration and our efforts into an unshakable refuge in a Dhamma. And we do that through the evolution of instruction, technique, and understanding to a Dharma lifestyle of embodied realization. This transformation, however, is not without unique challenges, which we must learn to navigate. During my extended practice in uh, Asia as a monk in Burma, I discovered the following unique challenges. Isolation from competitive distractions. Boredom with the sameness of the external conditions. Yogi mind amplification of the trivial into significance. Magnification of pleasant and unpleasant due to good samadhi. Increasingly subtler manifestation of the hindrances. Distorted perspective on time, the goal, and due diligence. Exquisite delighting in spiritual goodies. Stagnating through feeling satisfied and indulgent. Mistaking satisfaction with my practice for progress. Confusion between contentment, complacency, and comfort. And the ever unpredictable unfolding of wisdom. We can, however, monitor our practice in spite of these sure-to-arise challenges if we periodically visit, review, review and reflect on the four protective reflections. Mahasi Sayadaw, one of the um, ancestors of this lineage of intensive practice for householders identifies these four protective reflections as necessary prerequisites for understanding Vipassana knowledge. And the four I want to speak about tonight are reflecting on the virtues of the Buddha, development of loving-kindness or metta, contemplation of the unbeautiful aspect of the body or asubha bhavana and maranasati or the recollection of death. Each of these four reflections or practices of thought or thinking address specific 
obstructive tendencies that arise, that will arise in our practice here. However, when we can recognize the unwholesome nature of the tendency or the appearance in the mind, we can apply the proper antidote rather than indulging in bad practice habits. We've heard many stories of the practice of the Bodhisattva and the challenges that the Bodhisattva had to face in order to become a Buddha. And the qualities of mind of the awakened Buddha are well known to us. Qualities such as the paramis of generosity, sila, wisdom, renunciation, energy, patience, truthfulness. But there's one parami, one quality of an awakened mind that I want to speak about tonight, and that is aditana, the quality of a steadfast mind, or the resoluteness of the mind. Imagine that the ascetic Sumedha who made the vow to become a Buddha and then undertook the hundreds of lifetimes necessary in order to do that. I wonder if he ever had any second thoughts, like maybe this is too hard or have I got the stamina or even the commitment And I think for many of us, the quality of our understanding and the quality of our commitment and the quality of our resoluteness are maybe more variable than the bodhisattvas. I found it interesting to consider that resoluteness or aditana is different than virya, energy or effort. So it gave me pause to consider what does it really mean to be resolute, to be determined, to be steadfast, if it doesn't mean effort. When I decided to go to Asia, there was a certain level of discontent in my life that I knew was not going to be satisfied with more of the same of what I was doing. Really, the householder's life here in the West. And when I went to Asia, I went for specific reasons. One, to live in a Buddhist country to ordain as a uh, renunciate, and maybe most importantly, to practice intensively until I didn't want to practice anymore. And I didn't know what that really meant. (laughs) 
But I found that even just getting to the monastery in Rangoon, that there were plenty of uh, opportunities for reconsidering my purpose in being there. And uh, somehow I successfully navigated Bangkok and got to Rangoon and got to the monastery. Even there, Upandita offered me the first two days that I was there the opportunity to go out to the Shwedagon and check out Rangoon. But I declined his invitation. And at other times, he offered me the opportunity to travel with him or with others, to study Burmese or Pali, to write some, to even teach some. But I didn't find them as compelling as practicing because I knew that I really didn't understand what Vipassana and the Dhamma really had to offer. So what is steadfastness? Or what is a commitment? One of our students who came to a long retreat in Maui was celebrating her, at that time, 20th anniversary as a member of AA or participating in AA. And I congratulated her on 20 years successfully uh, navigating life without a drink, which she felt was essential to her life prior to that time. And I said, oh, after 20 years, it must be getting really easy. And she said, no, on the contrary. It's still difficult every day. But the practice of avoiding and understanding her situation was stronger. I think when we hear someone with a 20-year commitment, 30-year commitment, I think we understand that they didn't start out thinking or saying, I'm going to do this for 20 years. I'm going to do this for 30 years. And probably neither have we. But a commitment or steadfastness is not a single point of time. It's not created or conditioned or developed in a single point of time. But it is a living thing. It's a living uh, process within our heart, within our mind, that requires uh, nourishment. It requires uh, reflection and reconsideration and refinement as we continue to fulfill the obligation of our commitment. In this way, we are able to refine our understanding of our commitment, refine our determination to fulfill our commitment, And I think that rather than understanding the commitment as a goal, that to understand the commitment as a direction is more helpful. In that, in practice, we have lots of opportunities to turn aside, to feel disinterested, to feel uninspired, 
or obstructed by some strong mental tendency. And to consider in each of those moments that were obstructed, what is the direction that we have chosen to move with our life, with our practice? Not to measure our efforts or our experience or our accomplishments or progress by some uh, imagined goal that see, always seems to be far away in the future. After I'd been practicing with Upandita for a few months in Burma, uh, one day I went to his cottage and I saw that he was packing up to leave. And I felt threatened and kind of insecure. And he merely said to me, oh, tomorrow you can start reporting to Saido Ulakana in the other cottage. And I felt uh, alarmed. And so the first day that I was supposed to report to Lakana, I didn't go because I didn't know who he was. And I didn't, I thought I was going to take a break and to wait until Sayadaw came back. But someone came to get me on the second day, and I went to report. And I gave my standard report, which after four or five months was a pretty mm, familiar report to Upandita, but it was brand new to Ulakana. And he totally dismissed everything I said. And he gave me first day's instruction again. Um, place your attention on the abdomen and note the rising and falling. And then tell me about it. And I thought, this guy doesn't understand my practice. He doesn't know what, all that I've been through with Upandita, who really knows my practice. And I felt really chagrined. And I went back to my room and I fretted and stewed for a number of hours until I gave some reflection and I said... Um, Upandita's gone, and I'm still here, and I still need to practice because I'm obviously suffering, so what should I do? And I said, well, since I have to report to Lakana, maybe I should just do what he says. Upandita trusts him, so maybe I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. So that's what I did. And I realized later that what I had done there was actually reaffirm my commitment to practice till I didn't want to practice anymore. And in the meantime, my attachment to Upandita had kind of gotten in the way and obscured my original goal or my original intent, my original determination to be there. With changing teachers here, month after month or every few months, uh, you might find yourself in a similar situation, preferring the instruction of someone that you're familiar with or that offers the kind of instruction uh, that you like. Oh. One thing I have discovered on retreat and in my own practice and repeatedly in leading retreats is that commitment is contagious. All it takes is one person to work diligently to fulfill a sincere commitment and it affects everyone. And equally, 
All it takes is one person who really is pretty careless and casual about fulfilling their commitment to awaken, and that also affects everyone. Our commitment, our determination, our resoluteness is alive. It is conditioned. And it is uh, a significant element in our continuing to be able to practice effectively for the long term. When we lose faith, confidence, when we feel uninspired, sometimes reflecting on this particular quality of the Buddha, the innumerable times that the Bodhisattva must have had to recommit to the path of full Buddhahood and let that guide our own response to the difficulties that we're facing at that time. Second reflection that is taught as a protective reflection is loving-kindness. And I know some of you are undertaking uh, intensive or continuous loving-kindness practice. And most of us have practiced metta at one point or another, so I won't spend too much time on it except to acknowledge that loving-kindness or metta practice is useful for when we're feeling overwhelmed by dukkha, we have a lot of aversion to conditions in our life at the time, when we feel fear, feel alienated, or are indulging in self-pity. Then sometimes reflecting on ourselves and our care for ourselves, reflecting on our fellow yogis or retreatants and generating a loving attitude or wish for them can kind of bring us out of our own indulgence, if you will. I remember one time in Burma, for an extended period of time, there was another Western monk there who pestered me. Awful. And um, his particular form of pestering was he liked to talk to me. And in the dormitory that we were staying, we had just screen doors on our rooms. And uh, he would walk by my room, and if he, well, he didn't really care whether I was sitting or not. He would just come in, often without knocking, and invite himself in and just start telling me about his day. And this bothered me. And so I tried everything I could. I told him not to come first. And he did not listen. And then when he came, I told him he only had a short time, like five minutes. And that really didn't get through either. So then I just got angry. And I told him I didn't want him there. Of course, that didn't help things. He still came by. So I started practicing loving kindness with resentment. (laughs) Thinking that if I could love him enough, he'd he'd stay away. He'd be happy elsewhere. And that wasn't true metta. 
It wasn't until really that I actually stopped practicing metta for him and started practicing metta for myself that I was able to uh, really see what was going on there. And the metta for myself allowed me to actually mm, have compassion for my own suffering and uh, to kind of tolerate him and to accept him a little more. And that really led me to practice vipassana with the unpleasant feeling of anticipating him, experiencing him, listening to him, and my own reaction of aversion. So metta is really powerful for dealing with uh, bothersome conditions. In fact, the Buddha taught it to monks originally who were bothered by other beings who they didn't want to share their space with. About metta, I was in Burma in 1988 when there was um, the dictator of the last 30 years had resigned, and there was an anticipation in the country that there was going to be some sort of loosening, enlightening, and political and economic freedom. And so the whole country spent six or eight weeks in exuberant anticipation of the coming uh, democracy and opening up of the country. And that was brutally suppressed by the military after about six or eight weeks. And there was a a terrible and a very powerful mm, darkness that came over the whole country. A lot of fear and frustration, extraordinary anger, tremendous violence, and disappointment. And the people who came to the monastery were also uh, expressive of their mm, darkness. At that time, I found it was impossible to practice Vipassana, to stay, for me to stay open and aware of what was going on uh, and my concern for the, the people who were, lived in Rangoon at the time and came to the monastery was overwhelming. It was very difficult. And so Sayadaw asked me if I wanted to practice metta. So I started practicing metta. And it was very helpful for dealing with the extraordinarily disruptive external conditions uh, around me at the time. And after a couple of weeks of practicing in the traditional way with initially myself, then my benefactor, and uh, the sequence of friend and others, Sayadaw asked me one day if I was practicing metta for the generals who had taken over the country. And I said, no, I haven't got to them yet. Um, but I said it more strongly than that. Um, and I really questioned him why I should do that or how I could do that or um, given the given their states of mind, um, I, th- I thought it was difficult or maybe unwise to practice metta for them. But Upandita explained to me that really they too wanted to be happy. Even the most 
abhorrent of them, if you will, the ones who are most uh, cruel and abusive and violent, really want to be happy. And that if they were truly happy, maybe they would uh, see things differently and act differently themselves. So I started to practice metaphor, the generals, and uh, it was very difficult, of course, because every time I thought of them, I thought of what they were doing, and that made it uh, anger and aversion more likely to arise in my mind. But actually I found that uh, in time uh, I could sustain my wish for them to be happy. But it took some very diligent practice. And I think that we all come to find individuals in our life, or even ourselves, who is very difficult to love. And when we find ourselves indulging or trapped in or mired in, really, the aversion of one sort or another or self-pity, then I think that uh, metta practice can be really useful. There's a third protective reflection that I want to speak about that is not taught to come too frequently here in the West, and that's a, a Subha Bhavana. And Subha Bhavana refers to or is the development of the perception of the unbeautiful aspect of the body. This is a challenging practice to speak about without pushing someone's buttons. So I want to apologize now that if I carelessly say something or inadvertently say something that irritates you or pushes your button or whatever, then it's, it's unintentional. I don't mean for it to. But I'd like to try to speak about a Subha practice in a way that you might find it helpful in dealing with uh, some of the conditions that are bound to arise. Specifically, a Subha practice is, addresses our fawning adoration of our body and other people's bodies and what we can do with them or it and experience with it. Mostly, it is about indulging in pleasurable sensory experience. And it's not always uh, erotic in nature. Sometimes it's just indulging in our own uh, pleasant experiences uh, through our sense doors. So a super practice is to address or is to counteract the tendency to indulge in pleasantness. Of course, desire and lust is a very deeply rooted uh, tendency in the mind. And it is particularly damaging to samadhi, or the stillness of mind necessary for either attaining absorption through 
jhana practices or for the development and the unfolding of wisdom through vipassana practice. So this third reflection on asubha is a way to minimize the loss of our concentration due to craving, pleasurably pleasurable physical experiences. But it's important to remember that this practice is not about denying the body or harming the body or um, detaching from the body in any way. But it is about arousing dispassionate feelings toward the body. So we can get some idea of what a suba means by looking at the word suba. Suba means radiant, lustrous, beautiful, good, whole. And this aspect of the body is very well known. In our culture, it means young, smooth, energetic, healthy, firm, strong, pleasant. And these qualities condition attachment, excitement, fascination, fantasy, and identification. Asuba means not that. Asuba refers to the non-radiant, the non-lustrous, the unbeautiful, and the particulate nature or aspect of the body that which causes one to lose interest in or to have dispassionate feelings towards the body. Traditionally, this practice is a contemplation of what are called the 32 parts of the body, such as hair of the head, hair of the body, skin, nails, teeth, and things like that. And the the practice is really uh, to to take whatever part of the body you find yourself fascinated with. For some, it's the appearance of the body, and for some, it's the internal functioning of the body. So maybe it's not the skin or the hair for you. Maybe it's your heart or your liver or whatever. And to take that and to place it in front of your mind's eye to see its size, shape, color, odor, placement in the body, separate from the rest of the body, and to see how impersonal that thing is, and to cool out your fascination with, or your indulgence in, or your concern for this part of the body. When I was being uh, going to ordain as a monk, uh, Upandita said, uh, when you get your head shaved, I want you to reflect on hair of the head as one of the 32 parts of the body. So I promptly went to get my head shaved and squatted down and uh, a Burmese monk lathered up my hair then and in about two seconds, about three swipes of the straight razor, I was half bald and there was this soggy mass of soapy hair laying at my feet. Then I remembered that Sayadaw said, oh, Contemplate hair of the head is one of the 32 parts of the body. And in an instant, all of these memories about my hair came into my mind. I don't know how they all got in there at once, but nevertheless, 
They all showed up. The feelings, the days, the hours of standing in front of the mirror, trying to get each hair in the right place, noticing and condemning it for being too long, too short, wrong color, greasy, and couldn't find the shampoo I like, expensive haircuts, didn't like the haircut, and it just was, it all came in at once. I never realized prior to that how much time, energy, emotion, and frustration my hair had caused me. So I saw the value of undertaking a practice that I really didn't want to do and really had no um, even understanding of. But it really showed me how much I do or have done in my life and have never really paid attention. I was happy to notice when I moved into my room today that the mirror doesn't face me. There's no way to kind of get to it. You have to kind of... You have to really make an effort to kind of, kind of lean over the sink and look left to see yourself in the mirror. That's, that's pretty good. Good design. Thank you, Joseph. And <laughs> so, developing a, dis, a coolness towards the condition or appearance or functioning of our body is the purpose of Asuba. There's another Asuba, traditional Asuba practice, which I was surprised to discover was a Asuba practice because it is a recollection of the kinds of diseases that can befall the body. And I thought, well, this, this is just going to make one a hypochondriac or it's just going to make one afraid of what might happen. But indeed, it is to to generate in the mind the fact of how impersonal this body really is and how vulnerable it is to conditions beyond our control and to put in a, let's say, a proper perspective our fascination with it, our expectation that it is going to remain healthy, or our anticipation that it's going to live a long time, we actually don't know. And in fact, when the body gets sick, there's really, in a way, nothing wrong with it. This is the nature of the body, to get sick. And so, when I was in practicing in Asia, I was actually very lucky. I was quite healthy most of the time. But I remember one time in particular when Uh, during my Vipassana practice, I had very strong, unpleasant sensations in the head. And I was noting these sensations, and they were throbbing and pounding and burning and, you know, things, things that I'm sure you're all familiar with. And it went on for three days. In Burma, they say, um, if you have symptoms of a disease appearing in your practice, that you should wait three days before you go to seek medical attention. Because in this process of purifying the mind, often the purification of the mind comes out in the form of physical symptoms. So they say, wait three days. If it isn't gone by three days, then maybe you can get some attention. So I waited my three days, noting what was all this uh, intense pain in the head. 
And then I went to see Sayadaw, and he said, oh, did you take your temperature? And I took my temperature, and of course it was very high. So he gave me an aspirin, and uh, that was it. Took care of the temperature. I wish I'd known that before. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, he, I was encouraged to practice uh, even when the body was sick, especially when the body was sick, or when the body was less than feeling you know, really healthy. And it can be anything as simple as uh, indigestion to something more severe. But still, uh, we were encur- or I was encouraged to practice. And I heard from Kamala when she returned from Burma this year that uh, the only way you can get out of practicing now with Sayadaw in the hall as a group is if you're staying in the infirmary. You can't go to your room and say, oh, I'm sick, I can't practice today. You have to be in the infirmary under a, the care of a physician. That's the kind of practice that may be required for us to dispassionately mm, live in this body without excessive attachment. There's one additional piece to this Asuba practice that I want to mention that I think is particular to people who are undertaking long-term practice or have advanced in their practice to the point where the mind is pure and the sensitivity to uh, pleasant and unpleasant becomes really heightened. When the mind is pure, of course, it takes great delight in just knowing things as they are, whether it is painful, pleasant, or unpleasant. And when the mind is pure in this way, it produces also material experience. It's called uh, material, uh, mind-born materiality. And this materiality, or the experience of this materiality, is very subtle. And often in long-term practice, we, we experience this uh, mind-born materiality as lightness, uh, pleasantness, uh, tingling, what Upandita calls spiritual goodies, three of the four spiritual goodies. Um, lightness, tingling, smoothness, very subtle physical experience. And as soon as this kind of experience arises, it is an object of attention, of course, but also often an object of attachment and identification. And we think, oh, this is the way it really is. This is the way it's supposed to be. And we find ourselves, or maybe we don't find ourselves for a long time, actually indulging in the subtle physical experiences that come with good practice. So this kind of uh, indulgence is really, again, an attachment and identification with the body. And continued either a suba practice or um, kind of reflecting on the impermanent and the impersonal nature of the body is the antidote to this kind of, is the reflective antidote to this kind of indulgence. 
Vipassana, of course, is the wisdom antidote to it. I want to tell a story about one Asuba practitioner at the time of the Buddha. And this is uh, about uh, a story about Ambapali. Now, you might remember that Ambapali was that famously beautiful courtesan of the town of Vesali. And it is said that the whole town become wealthy and well-known because of her beauty. And she was a student or a devout follower of the Buddha. And in fact, she invited the Buddha to, uh, and Buddha and some of his monks to a meal. And she also offered one park or a garden for the use of the Sangha to take their rest in. And whenever Ambapali was coming to listen to the Buddha give a discourse, the Buddha would caution the monks who would be there, saying that Ambapali is coming to listen to the talk today. Now guard your senses because she's very beautiful and you could lose your mindfulness if you're not careful when she comes. When Ambapali was older and she took up the practice uh, more earnestly, it is said that at one time, evidently looking in the mirror, she saw, or maybe not looking in the mirror, she saw the signs of aging on her body. Now all of us have probably noticed that. Gravity taking hold, wrinkles where we never used to have wrinkles, and gray hair if we still have hair, things like that. And it said that by noticing the aging, the signs of aging in her body, she became fully enlightened. So, if you happen to look in a mirror, or look at yourself, or at anyone else, and you see signs of aging, uh, maybe that's not your conditioning to get enlightened. But it could be if we practice a subha practice. A subha practice is particularly useful in addressing and overcoming or putting aside obsessive lust and desire, anxiety over aging, fear of disease, and attachment to our youthful appearance or functioning of the body. So we have reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha, developing loving-kindness, developing the perception of the unbeautiful aspect of the body. And the fourth reflection that protects our practice and really arouses a sense of urgency is reflecting on death. Death is one of the eight causes of samvega or samvega, the arousing of what is called spiritual urgency. Now I'd off thought or I'd always thought that Samvega was some kind of hurry upness. You know, like I better hurry up and kind of get on with spiritual practice, not delay. And that is one aspect of Samvega, to kind of put this limited lifetime in the perspective of what is it you want to do with your spiritual practice and to kind of urge urge us to make timely efforts. 
when I was talking to Dhamma Ruan, um, one of our students uh, from Sri Lanka recently, and he was pointing out a different feeling, a different experience of Samvega to me. He said, you know how you feel when someone you know or someone you're close to dies suddenly? And I had this feeling a couple of years ago when one of my good friends and a fellow who had done a lot of retreats with us and had actually served on a lot of retreats uh, that we led in Maui, who was very healthy, only 50 years old, very healthy, very concerned to eat properly and get the right exercise, died suddenly. And there was the predictable concern with, well, how did he die and you know, what was the cause and was there any mm-hmm, extenuating circumstances and da-da-da. But the, the fact is, his karma ran out. Whether he had a disease or not, or whether it was an accident or not, karma of this lifetime ran out. And that is something that none of us know. No matter how healthy we are or expect to be or how long we expect to live. Our karma can run out at any moment. And when it does, it's going to come as a shock to us, probably. So you know that feeling that comes when your best friend dies? Suddenly? And then everything feels empty. Everything feels meaningless. You kind of it kind of pulls the plug on all of your urgency on your to-do list. And everything is just kind of, uh. And the, the knowledge of impermanence and, and the impersonal nature of it, the, the unknowability of life is just so present in your mind. It's really the understanding of impermanence, the understanding of dukkha, and the understanding of the impersonal nature of this whole process called life. That is the feeling of samvega. So traditionally, maranasati is mindfulness of death or the recollection of death. And I think it's designed to really bring a sense of urgency to our practice to overcome laziness or inertia or boredom. Somehow, even though we all know that death is a fact, and it will die. Somehow it seems far away. It always seems to be out there in the future somewhere, over the horizon, not yet in view. And this practice of maranasati or mindfulness of death is to bring that fact closer so that we bring it so close that it conditions how we spend our time today. 
It's no secret that we're going to die. But we often don't use that fact to support our practice. Often it arouses fear or a sense of, I've got to hurry up and get done everything I want to do before time runs out, feeling. On a long retreat like this that you're on, month, two, three, some of you are here expecting to stay for a year or more. May it be so. However, it's easy sometimes to lose perspective. And we can kind of think, we fall into a kind of an unconscious belief that we have the time that we've planned on being here. Or we think that these conditions that allow us to practice like this are going to last. And often, that belief or that feeling is unconscious. We are just going about day by day, assuming that we're going to be able to go on day by day, next week, next month, next year. So this reflection on death is to acknowledge to ourselves that life is uncertain, that only death is certain. To reflect that the length of our life is unknown. None of us know how long we'll live. And to consider that since everyone must die and there's no possibility of avoiding it, to conclude that I too must die. This practice is not to kind of of mire you in morbidity or fear or wondering how it is that your time is going to end, but just to acknowledge the fact that our time is going to end here on this earth. Great beings have died in the past year. Those who've been real benefactors to our being here. And their time on earth is up. It's over. And our time on earth will come to an end too. One of the conditions, or one of the causes really of my going to Burma was I was on retreat here in, at IMS really. And in one of my meditations, I had this uh, dream-like vision appear in my mind's eye. And it was kind of shocking and startling to me. And it was a shrouded, uh, like a shrouded skull, skull with sunglasses on. Well, anyway, that's what it looked like. And the voice said to me, the moment of your death is the most important moment of your life. And it was uh, kind of a piercing recognition of the truth of that. And it kind of stopped my busy mind and it, within a a couple days, the idea and the determination, it wasn't even really a decision necessary, but the determination to uh, kind of disentangle myself from my lay life and to go to Asia to practice uh, arose in my mind.
And I think it was a powerful mm, recollection or remembrance or lesson that you know, time doesn't wait. And it's if we, if we really consider what it is that we want to do with our life and uh, what our aspiration is in Dharma practice or Dharma understanding in this lifetime, that we really have no time to, to waste or to, to spend carelessly. Being bored, being lazy, indulging in petty craving and aversion are put into a different perspective when we consider that we may not have time for that tomorrow. Sirimando, Terra, wrote this in the Terragata. The world is assailed by death and smothered by old age, pierced with the arrow of craving and always obscured by desires. Old age, illness, and death approach like three great masses of fire. No strength can resist them. No speed can outrun them. Spend your days without confusion, whether few or many remain. For every night that slips away, there is that much less of life left. Whether walking or standing, sitting or lying down, your final night is drawing near. You have no time to be lazy. So we have these, this extraordinary opportunity here to undertake this period of practice for as long as we can. And we also have these inevitable, extraordinary and unique challenges that we must learn to navigate and overcome. And these four reflections prerequisites, really, to the opening of Vipassana knowledge protect our practice from laziness, from fear, from disinterest, boredom, from distraction. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words settle down.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.